Rise if you are able for the reading of God's word. Passage today is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be burdened to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards, your, towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is God's word. So we're continuing in our series on Westgate's core commitments. This morning we look at life on life discipleship. The Apostle Paul would not have become the man he was if Barnabas had not spiritually mentored him during his formative years of faith. And Paul, in turn, discipled Timothy, Titus, and Silas, men who helped establish the church throughout the nations. Jesus poured his life into 12 men, 11 of whom changed the world. Discipleship is God's plan A for his kingdom. There is no plan B. Jesus said, go make disciples. He didn't say, go make converts. He said, go make disciples. Let's pray. Our Father, may your spirit be mighty among us today, speaking to each one of our hearts, beginning with me to help us see what you would have us to see, to help us in our journey, not only as individuals, but as a church. Lord, show us the beauty, the wonder of what discipleship should be and how it could be in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> life on life discipleship is at the core of spiritual transformation because relationship is at the center of the very being of our triune God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in a, an eternal loving relationship where they exalt one another, commune with one another, support one another, defer to one another. See, at the very essence of God's character, his, his interior life overflows with love. Since we are made in God's image, 
We are designed to grow through community, through loving relationships with God and with others. Todd Hall, the author of the book Relational Spirituality, wrote, the relational image of God in us means that we develop, grow, and change primarily and directly through relationships, and more specifically, through the mutual love of God. God is love. Since the internal nature of God is love, we should not be surprised that we who were created in his likeness would be formed by loving relationships with him and others. This is why life-on-life discipleship is so effective in our spiritual growth. This morning, we're going to look at the practice of discipleship that the Holy Spirit uses to move us forward in our spiritual lives. And we'll look at the motivation for, the nature of, the goal of, and the resources for discipleship. We begin with the motivation for discipleship. Mark Devers defines discipleship as deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will become more like Christ. Deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Paul's words to the Thessalonians reflect this definition. Paul's ministry was about them, doing spiritual good to them so that they might become more like Christ. He didn't ask anything for himself. We read that in verses 5 and 6. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. By disavowing flattery, greed, and glory-seeking, Paul uncovered the mistaken motives of disciples of his day but we're not immune to those same motives. We want people to think of the best of us, so we use flattery. We want to have secure financial resources, so we become greedy. We want to build up our self-esteem, so we seek glory. These are all self-seeking motivations, and Paul would have none of it and neither should we. Paul's motives were the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians and the glory of God. Paul wanted God to be glorified. He lived a Christ-like life to that end, and he poured his life into others so they might become like Christ and their lives and the church of Christ would glorify God. But God also sought the well-being of the Thessalonians, knowing that as they became more like Christ, they would experience more and more abundant life. They would experience the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They would find Their lives were fulfilled in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. 
He wanted what was best for them and what was best for God. Paul wasn't about himself. He wasn't about money or glory. He was about them. He was for them. Whether you're a discipler, a disciple, or in a mutual discipling relationship, it should always be about the other person you're with. See, we are only going to open up our lives to others when we feel they want our best. And they are going to only open up their lives when they feel that we want their best. Discipleship has to be other-centered. The nature of discipleship. Deep discipleship flows from deepening relationships. Paul wrote of his intimacy with the Thessalonians that led to their transformation. We see this in verses 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. See, Paul compared himself to a nursing mother in verse 7, and later he compares himself to a father in verses 11, the two most intimate relationships of a growing child. Paul was close to them. Though he would regularly challenge them, he would rebuke them about the way they were living, he spoke words that were difficult to hear, but he was always gentle with them to whoever would listen. He offered the same comforting care that a mother gives to a nursing child. When he had them look at the mirror in themselves, he displayed the same gentle, patient heart of Jesus, knowing, realizing they were still growing in their faith. And like a loving parent, Paul was sacrificial in his care for them, all because what was coming from his heart, not simply his will. His heart overflowed with affection for them. And because they were dear to him, he shared the gospel first, and he shared his life. You know, notice how Paul's discipleship of the Thessalonians began with the gospel, with bringing them to Christ. Discipleship doesn't just have to be for believers. It can begin with those who do not yet believe. You know, on two occasions, my wife discipled women who were not Christians when he, she began her time with them. They approached her because she had showed an interest in them, that she's warm, approachable, and safe. They knew that she cared for them. They sought her out, and all she did was open the scriptures and showed them Jesus. They came to faith, and she discipled them after that. And to this day, she has an intimate spiritual relationship with each of them. 
we can disciple those who don't know yet, yet know Christ if we ourselves are open, caring, and vulnerable, they may approach us. Paul brought them to faith through the gospel, and we know from the rest of his writings that he also brought them to maturity by keeping the gospel central in his teaching, but also by sharing his life with them, life-on-life discipleship. His impact on them was more the result of his life than what he said with his mouth. He would preach about Christ, but he'd also live it out before them. And just like the people of Jesus' day began to understand who God was by looking at the way Jesus lived, the people of Paul's day began to see what Jesus was like by the way Paul lived. That's why Paul could say, be imitators of me. Paul's life was a model by showing the depth of his relationship with God, his commitment to the Lord, and his sacrificial love of those within and without the church. He could say to them in verse 10, you are my witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. If you're like me, you are intimidated by these words if you want to be a discipler. I am no Apostle Paul. I got some amens. I am weak and frail and far from being able to say to you, be an imitator of me like I am of Christ. I wouldn't describe myself as Paul could, holy, righteous, and blameless. So how can I be a discipler of other people? I think God allows me to do that if I still have a passion for him and I'm trying to grow in him and I'm willing to be transparent with others and share my struggles. See, because I see Paul did that. In 1 Timothy, he called himself the chief sinner, a blasphemer who was saved by Jesus' grace. He also shared that he had a perpetual thorn in the flesh and how God used that to give insight into his weaknesses when he thought he was so great. And Paul wrote of how this led him to find strength in the Lord rather than in himself and how God used his weakness to bring him down from a throne of arrogance. Paul shared his spiritual journey with us. Having been sinful, weak, and arrogant didn't disqualify Paul as a discipler and enabled him to meet the Thessalonians and all of us precisely where we live. And he showed us how we can move forward. We can do the same regardless of where we are on our spiritual journey. With the grace of God, iron sharpens iron, one life sharpens another. Paul was like a mother and a father to the Thessalonians. We read verses 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God 
who calls you into his kingdom and glory. In his fatherly role, Paul exhorted, encouraged, and charged them. He used three different roles in approaching the Thessalonians to spur them on to growth. See, life on life is going to include all of these. Each of us naturally gravitates to a, a style of leadership, a style of discipleship. Some of us are exhorters, and we're going to tell people how they should and shouldn't live. Some of us are encouragers, lifting people's spirits by always keeping hope before them. Others of us are going to challenge one another to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. While we might gravitate to one of these styles, we need to use all of them. We need to have each of them like an arrow in our quivers. There are times we need to be direct, times we need to put our arm around someone, and times to challenge them in their relationship with Christ. You know, later in 1 Thessalonians, in the fifth chapter, he wrote, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. See, our approach shouldn't be one size fits all. It should be tailored to each person and each situation. There's a time to admonish, a time to encourage, a time to help, always being patient. We need to understand those times, and we won't unless we know the person we are working with, unless we are listening to one another, understanding who that person is, what their situation is, and what their needs are. And then the Spirit can lead us in the right way to approach them. See, that's why smaller, intimate groups generate the greatest growth. The goal of Life on Life discipleship is for us to walk worthy of God. Discipleship is about following Christ, imitating Christ, and becoming like Christ. Most churches would say, that's our goal. But in reality, many of us have moved away from that goal. In his book, Deep Discipleship, J.T. English writes, one of the greatest hindrances to deeper discipleship is self-centered rather than Christ-centered discipleship. David Wells comments on the disappearance of God-centered vision for discipleship in the appearance of the self-centered discipleship when he says that we can see the shift from God to self as the center focus of our faith. He goes on to highlight how this theological shift has led to confusion about who God is, what discipleship is, and what the church's role is. In a culture of self, we are tempted to make discipleship about ourselves. In a culture where God is seen more as a therapist than the holy God who we should be worshipped, we are tempted to treat God as our therapist rather than as our Lord. 
That said, we do not want to forget that God is for us, that God wants the best for us, that he wants an abundant life for us. It's only when our relationship with him is grounded in the realization of his profound love for us that our hearts are moved to love him and to love others. That's the foundation of discipleship. But we move from that because of our love for God to desiring to follow him and to glorify him. Our initial motivation for discipleship might well be selfishness, just like it was when we came to Christ. But true discipleship enables us to move beyond ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to live for Christ. That should be our target. Self-centered discipleship leads to confusion about God, ourselves, and others. It perpetuates a misunderstanding of love, joy, peace, and hope. It turns to self-help books or selective passages that validate us or help us feel better about ourselves. Paul's resource for God-centered discipleship was God's Word, whether in season or out of season. Verse 13 We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Christian books can be helpful in discipleship, but they need to depend on and to drive us deeper into the Word of God. Paul points to the Word of God as the transforming agent for the Thessalonians. And we could spend an entire sermon on the centrality of God's Word. And Travis did last week. See, see, Travis, I was listening. Suffice it to say that spiritual growth doesn't come from just reading, studying, or memorizing God's Word. These are helpful in getting scriptures into our minds, but it has to move from our minds to our hearts. We have to receive it as God's Word, not the words of men. We need to listen to it as though God is speaking directly to us. We shouldn't read it as we read any other book. The Bible speaks with the voice of God. So we can have certainty about whatever it says. We can have confidence when it directs our lives with truth. And we can have the assurance that we can build our lives on this word. And we have an unshakable foundation. And we can know that our convictions about God, our purpose, our way of life, our forgiveness, eternal life, are all grounded in reality because God has said it. So how does God move his truth from head to heart? Through the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit drives it home. Chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul pointed out that the Holy Spirit sinks God's truth deep into our lives. It's the letter, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul informed us that the word of God is the sword of the spirit that cuts into our souls. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Life on life, discipleship can only transform us if the Holy Spirit is at work using the Word of God to speak into our lives. And that begins with us opening our lives to that Holy Spirit to explore us. You know, I wish I had personal stories like my wife has of how my discipleship has changed lives. I don't. I don't because I've fallen short of what I'm preaching this morning. If you feel the same way, it doesn't have to stop. Stay this way. I, you, this church can hear God's call to discipleship and respond. A first step could be to join our Sunday school class on discipleship. It's co-led by Ben, who has poured his life into discipleship. Prayerfully consider this step. If not, I hope God grabs your heart about discipleship and come and speak to one of us to learn how to begin. We are praying that a culture of discipleship will blossom at Westgate Church. It's one of our core commitments <clears throat> stated in this way on our website. <clears throat> Disciples are followers of Christ, so we want to grow in spiritual maturity and Christ-like character. The church is a family, so we want to grow in Christ together sharing life in and around the good news of Jesus. At Westgate, this happens both Sunday mornings and midweek in both small group settings like home groups, Bible studies, youth group, and in more personal settings like spiritual mentoring relationships. It also means developing leaders for kingdom work here at Westgate and beyond, as well as passing the faith on to the next generation. May the Holy Spirit lead us to fulfill this commitment. Let's pray. Lord, we do call upon you to put into each one of our hearts your truth to give us this image. We thank you for this image you've given us, Paul, about Paul and, and his intimacy with the Thessalonians, with his passion for their growth in Christ, with his sharing his very life, which we also saw Jesus do. Lord, help us, each one of us, find those people with whom we can grow in Jesus Christ, 
who would spur us on and challenge us, who would confront us about where we are not like Christ and encourage us and lift our eyes to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.